today on the National Law Enforcement Liaison Program podcast, we bring you Dr. Darren Grandel of the Foundation for Advancing Alcohol Responsibility. Dr. Grandel's career began when he joined the Washington State Patrol as a trooper in 1992, where he was promoted to sergeant, lieutenant, and ultimately captain before retiring in 2017. During his time as captain, Governor Christine Gregoire appointed Dr. Grandel as the director of the Washington Traffic Safety Commission in 2012. He was reappointed by Governor Inslee in 2013. Under his leadership, the WTSC led the passage of multiple traffic safety laws, including impaired driving policies and distracted driving laws that resulted in improved enforcement and effectiveness. Dr. Grandel also directed Washington's efforts to measure the effect of marijuana legalization on impaired driving. The data, programs, public education, research, and policies he implemented to prevent drug-impaired driving and multi-substance-impaired driving have provided a national model to address these emerging issues. Dr. Darren Grundell, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you very much. Uh, beautiful weather where you are right now? Absolutely. A little wind, but mostly it's about 60 degrees in January. <laughs> it's, it's a hard life to take when you're Dr. Darren Grundell. Oh, it is a hard life. How have you been and how is responsibility.org? I've been doing well. I started with Responsibility.org back in April of 2020, and here it's January 2021, and I don't think I have ever been busier in uh, in all of my career. And we've got so many uh, new programs, new things that we've been working on that uh, I hope will be able to be a benefit to all the, you know, like the Governor's Highway Safety Association, the State Highway Safety Offices, and more importantly, um, is our law enforcement liaisons that are doing uh, so much good work that we hope that we can provide some resources that they need. We appreciate that more than you absolutely, with more than I could tell you. Um, you and I both have an affinity for our law enforcement liaison program, me and my position, you and your former position. Uh, one time, the chief uh, executive, the, the big boss, the chairman of the board of the Governor's Highway Safety Association. Uh, how did they, you come into that from your past experiences? Uh, coming in as the chair of the GHSA? Yeah. Well, I spent 25 years with the patrol, uh, but when I was in my 20th year, I was appointed by the governor to take over the State Highway Safety Office. And what we thought was going to be a one-year appointment turned into eight, and it was uh, a major blessing in my life. Um, it was not a career track within the patrol. It was uh, an opportunity that arose. And I really wanted to see how we could continue the good work. The, the Washington Traffic Safety Commission, fantastic organization, amazing directors that they've had in the past. And I knew I had a lot of big shoes to fill. And I knew that one of those ways of filling those shoes was being a part of the national, uh, kind of the national scene uh, on a variety of things with IACP's Highway Safety Committee, the National Sheriff's Association's Traffic Safety Committee. And then with GHSA, um, I spent a couple of years as just kind of learning and observing and then uh, took on the role of, or was I say was elected into the role of secretary and spent several years as secretary. And then when Janice Simpler from Delaware left, uh, it left a vacancy. So I took that opportunity and it was a great opportunity to, to be the chair of GHSA. Uh, it was, I mean, I do miss it um, and the people and all the work we were doing. But at the end of the day, I mean, I'm, I'm glad that I have this job because I got to telecommute and I got out of the rain in Washington. <laughs> so, a lot of nice things about Washington, but the rain's not one of them. No, no. <laughs> so uh, we, have many, 
we had amazing people in Washington that were very innovative and creative in their uh, in their roles. And you know, as the state highway safety office director, you know, after several years, I realized that we had a real gap. Um, we did have a regional law enforcement liaison that helped us, you know, but he had all of the states and. So I hired um, Captain Bob Thompson from the Puyallup Police Department to come in and be our state LEL to really help get down to the, the local level uh, officers. Uh, and we both had you know municipalities, counties, and then we had tribal agencies. We had 29 federally recognized tribes in Washington and a lot of jurisdictional overlaps. And so we really wanted to be able to have um, um, Bob, or at least the state LEL, being able to work with our local coordinators. And we had 17 uh, local coordinators, they call them target zero managers. Mm-hmm. And they're embedded with a local PD or a local health department, or you know, th- there's some others that have different contracts, but their focus was how do they help move our message, help with briefings, helping with the uh, high visibility enforcement campaigns. <clears throat> They did a lot of the the, the, um, the vouchering and some of those things. So the LELs could really focus on how to help the agencies get more involved in high visibility enforcement, doing media campaigns, media outreach, you know, a variety of public messaging. So we, we were not, um, I mean, I, I would say we had a really great program, but I know that there's a lot of really great programs around the country. And so there's models that we had actually looked at from different states to build our law enforcement liaison program because we, we, we knew with some of the issues. And at that time um, that I brought Bob on, we started seeing a lot of the Ferguson effect and we wanted to do, you know, are we really seeing a lot of that in Washington? And there were our survey showed that we were not seeing uh, officers pulling back due to civil unrest and that kind of thing. Most of it was because they just, they just did not have the resources. Many of the agencies saw significant uh, resource um, reductions. People would retire, transfer, whatever, and they were not uh, rehiring those positions. And so what we were trying to do is, is how do we as a state highway safety office support the local agencies in continuing to focus on traffic safety? And then we also found through some of our data that many of the agencies says we would be we would really like to be a part of the like the DUI high visibility enforcement campaigns, but we haven't had any follow up training. Some of us don't have refresher BAC cards, you know, so they weren't actually able to use the BAC machines because their cards had expired and their agencies hadn't put them through again, and so and that was a requirement per our grant is that they had. SFSTs, they had, or, or they were even A-Ride, but the SFSTs, they had to have a, a certified um, and, and current BAC card as part of that contract. And so we found that we had some areas that we could really focus on to help train. And that was, you know, some of the more rural, more of the smaller agencies that just didn't have the, the training budgets and those kind of things, or the ability to let people go off to training. And so one of those issues that we really tried to work with when I was chair with GHSA is how do we help to get agencies that backfill so we can send somebody to to like a DRE training yet pay for the person that's backfilling them so that the agency is not losing it like on minimum staffing levels or any of that. So that was a big, I think we're going to see some changes with that. And uh, I think nationwide, 
because that can be a game changer if chiefs and sheriffs knew that um, that backfill can be paid and we can send people to training. And that would actually enhance the quality of life in their own communities by getting some of these folks off the road that shouldn't be there. And I think that that last statement there is the key to everything right now, that traffic safety is truly a quality of life issue in communities. It, it has to do with mm -hmm. the movement of traffic and goods and commerce and the safe movement of that goods and commerce uh, and protecting all road users. So that quality of life issue is something that gets overlooked at, which, as you said, um, at the higher level, you get to deal with all the executives of the law enforcement agencies, whereas the law enforcement liaisons can get right down in the nitty gritty with the frontline workers. Comes down to networking and partnerships. Speaking of partnerships, you've moved on from GHSA and now are a uh, member of one of our great partners in responsibility.org. Tell us about that. So in April, I came on as the Vice President of Government Relations and Traffic Safety for Responsibility.org. You know, people may know us as the, as the Foundation for Advancing Alcohol Responsibility. You may see our moniker that we see all, you know, that we use all the time as Responsibility.org. And <clears throat> we've been around since 1990. We originally um, were called the Century Council. And we are funded through the leading distiller companies in the U.S. And yet... They have what they call the Distillers Council of the United States. It's called DISCUS. And then Responsibility.org was a nonprofit organization specifically designed for a threefold mission. And that was to eliminate underage drinking, eliminate uh, drunk driving, and all forms of impaired driving, and then to have um, alcohol responsibility for adults who choose to drink. And so, they, we have built a, a number of programs, and if you go to responsibility.org, you'll see the tabs at the top. And you know, for law enforcement liaisons that may be working in uh, communities where there's schools, they have school resource officers, there's a whole program called Ask, Listen, and Learn. And it's really designed for some of our up and coming kids and teens that are starting to be pressured and those kind of things with alcohol. Uh, it's good for teachers to use, school resource officers, and we've also had teachers that, um, not teachers, but um, parents that are able to use this. So it's kind of kind of a, a way for parents to have that conversation with teens about alcohol and the, the issues and the challenges and the, you know, the impacts on the developing brain and, and that kind of thing. So that's one thing that we have. And then in um, uh, the... Um, the uh, underage, or I'm sorry, the eliminate impaired driving piece is we have a, a, a tremendous amount of resources in there. And one that we've had in there for quite a while is on how to build an electronic search warrant system in your jurisdiction or um, enhancing one that you have currently. So we've got some resources for, for that. We are um, going to be hosting a phlebotomy webinar on January 27th. And that is going to be in conjunction with the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. And we have Don Morose, who used to be a, um, I think, a DRE coordinator in Minnesota. And we're going to be uh, addressing the implementation and the challenges of phlebotomy programs because we see that the multi-substance issue or the multi-substance impaired driver is becoming a much more highly you know, focused and uh, a lot of fatalities, the numbers we're seeing are off the charts from around the country. Uh, impaired driving alone, as we know through this pandemic with the latest numbers that have come out, it's increasing. And so 
But then when you look at how long it takes, if you arrest, if you stop somebody and there's no alcohol, or even if there is alcohol, and you start to see other indicators that there might be drug impairment, and you develop your probable cause, you write your affidavit, you get your search warrant, and then to try to get blood, if it's from a hospital or some other medical facility, you know, we're seeing lots of folks taking a long time to get the blood. And so, and then there's, you know, when I was a trooper, you know, I hated having to get blood and go to court because it was like, oh, I hope the doctor or the nurse shows up. And, you know, and I had a case where the doctor, or actually, I'm sorry, it was the nurse did not show up to testify and they dismissed the case. And so that would have been nice to have had kind of a single chain of custody. Or if they, you know, like in some agencies where they may have another officer draw blood, um, at least you knew the officer was more than likely to be there. <laughs> so, but it also, we found that with phlebotomy is, you know, it's the gold standard. And so we know that there's oral fluid testing, which we're also working on, but really blood is that gold standard. We can utilize that. And, you know, we've seen Arizona that has been utilizing it for over 25 years and been using it successfully. Meridian, Idaho, Utah Highway Patrol has been using it. Uh, when I was the Highway Safety Office Director in Washington, we um, have helped one of our agencies be kind of the pilot for that Lakewood Police Department. And they took that and ran and they built a program. And now every agency along just around them in that I-5 corridor up through Seattle is taking it on. So we had over 12 agencies, 66 officers, and multiple trainings uh, scheduled until the pandemic. And so, <laughs> but that's another thing that I think, you know, agencies start looking at is one, how long does it take and how long is the officers off the road? How do we help to reduce that time? So getting a warrant, getting blood, you can help expedite that process. Two is then it, you know, when you get to court, those cases seem to be adjudicated much faster than having to just go through the regular process. And so that could save a lot of money uh, in court overtime. And some officers are like, no, 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 I need my overtime. But, but really is being able to um, make it more efficient and helping to hold people more accountable. So that's coming up. And the National uh, Highway Traffic Safety Administration has a phlebotomy toolkit, or it's a law enforcement phlebotomy toolkit that will be addressed in that as well. And then uh, within our own programs, we have a new uh, uh, publication that we just released in December, which is the Cannabis Impairment Detection Workshop. And it is basically a green lab monograph. And so uh, now that we see states that are legalizing cannabis and um, we may be seeing some things happen at a federal level that it might be decriminalized, is that this is a, a, a handbook that was created um, we actually contracted with the National District Attorneys Association and a lot of subject matter experts from around the country, from law enforcement, prosecutorial, toxicology, um, the whole system. And really looking at, hey, look, I have recreational marijuana in my state or even medical. I want to help my officers have a real time um, identification of what this looks like. So much like our wet labs with alcohol and dosing do the same thing with cannabis and how that can be done, how you can obtain the cannabis, uh, partnerships that you can develop with the, um, the cooperative stores in, in your states and, and actually do this. And I watched this in um, Montgomery County, uh, Maryland, where they did the, the green lab. It was done all outside, obviously, and then, or at least the, the consuming part of it. 
And then they came in and they had several um, squads of DREs and officers that did the actual, you know, the field sobriety tests, making determinations. They also had a driving simulator that they were using and baselined them on driving. And then they did field sobrieties and then they could see the two. Um, and they were actually driving in downtown Baltimore on the simulator. And it was interesting to see uh, that even though they were all had you know, great familiarity, they still made a lot of mistakes. And in that time and distance reaction, um, those kind of things. And so it was really fascinating to watch. But the officers got to see it real time and to see it. And then they threw in somebody because, you know, with uh, cannabis, typically you don't see the horizontal gaze established with cannabis. So they had somebody drink just a little bit of alcohol and they came back out into the tests and the DREs are saying, man, I'm getting gaze. And they're like, no, you're not going to get gaze with cannabis. And I'm like, make sure that you're you know, I didn't say anything because I did not want to prejudice the, the training. But I was in my mind saying, look at the whole picture, look 360, you know, look at all of those indicators, the physiology, you know, all of the responses, all those things. And they some of these DREs just kind of passed it, you know, let it pass. And they're like, no, no, no I'm seeing gays. Oh, no, 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 you won't see it. No. And then at the end of the training, they're like, how many did you see gays? We gave this guy alcohol. And they're like, oh, <laughs> well, you know, just a good lesson to, you know, don't get so myopic on your, on the training, you know, look at the whole picture. But what was fascinating with that too, is they took the five hours of training and then they took the next five hours and went out and did an emphasis patrol in specific areas. And so they were helping to reinforce that training immediately. And so, but and, and the coordinator of that was one of our subject matter experts on this green lab. And so um, I can help provide you all the links to those so that you can send them out to all the LELs in the program. But that's a great publication just came out and we hope that would support them. We have a new pretrial services document that's also that just came out. Uh, it will be under kind of the same link and that helps really as far as assessments and helping with courts and helping to process those some of those DOIs a little bit differently and uh, maybe hopefully some new perspectives. It's about a 154-page document, but it is filled with information that jurisdictions could go through and really look at and analyze how we could change some of the system. Because with DOI, we know that it's going to take a variety of different um, um, angles to help fix those issues and eliminate impaired driving. Another one that we just created that will be very instrumental, I think, with all of the law enforcement liaisons here is Jim Camp um, used to be a prosecutor up in Wisconsin, went down, became the traffic safety resource prosecutor in Tennessee. And he had a, a program that he did was called um, the silver bullet for court uh, courtroom testimony. Well, we've changed the name a little bit, but they uh, uh, still the same great, great content. And then we've put it into kind of a little bit of a guide. And then we've also put it into a, a foldable um, uh, form so that they could put it in the pocket, they could put it in the jockey box, their ticket books or whatever. But what it is, is it's a uh, um, enhancement for, and just kind of a, a checklist for when you're doing a DUI. And questions to ask, observations to make, uh, all kinds of different things. It's not a, you know, trying to be condescending, saying you don't know anything, but just ways to help remind you, especially after, you know, if you haven't been doing DUIs for a while. And 
some good reminders, things to put in your case reports, things to have conversations with the prosecutors about uh, to really enhance the ability to address DOI. Uh, moving DOI from, a, well, that's just a DOI, it's a big deal, they're not criminals. Well, they really are. And that mindset needs to, you know, I think for me, when I was working the road, you know, I was a trooper and, you know, obviously that was our bailiwick. Because when they're killing people and they're running out there, they're no different than some folks that are just pointing a gun at somebody. And luckily the trigger doesn't either go off or when it does, it impacts people's lives. And so I think that's one thing is helping to change the culture on that is helping officers see the importance of getting DUIs off our roadways. And so that's available. Um, that's a fantastic, um, there's two documents. One's kind of an overview and then other one's more of a checklist. Uh, that officers can use and I was actually going through it and I'm thinking dang I wish I had some of those things when I was working the road that was brilliant we, you know? we could put together the best case with a hundred different data points to put forward as, as our, our prosecution and you only had to miss one to lose that entire case exactly. so having having a little checklist like that what a godsend like it's so good that and especially when you can recognize in yourself and I did I was a checklist guy on the road because I knew I couldn't remember everything. And, and the best investigators, the homicide guys, the, they always had a checklist that they went through, a, a process. So checklists are a great tool, great resources. All these resources that you've talked about, we are gonna link with this, this uh, publication in the, in the broadcast, uh, simply because we wanna help everybody as much as we possibly can. Uh, mm -hmm. What do you see going forward? Uh, we are at a, a wonderful time right now, uh, great opportunities, the beginning of year. What do you see coming forward in traffic safety and in the world of quality of life because better traffic? Well, I think there's a lot of dedicated and committed people uh, in this field. I mean, when you come into traffic safety, it's it's sometimes it wasn't like, well, I was in high school and I just want to do traffic safety. You know, uh, you really fall into it. So there's a calling to it. And I think that that's where there's a very, you know, a, a lot of committed people. And I think that's part of what we need is a passion and not just a, a job, but a real passion. But I think what we're seeing right now with um, some of the negativity uh, with law enforcement and you know not doing traffic stops and putting civilians in is looking at a bright spot and saying, you know what, we really need, if we're gonna change the culture in our city, our state or county or even across the country is what do we truly value? What are our attitudes and beliefs? Now, you know, despite all that negativity is continuing undaunted to say, you know what, we're gonna to continue to do what we know is right and continue to make an impact. Now I know city councils and mayors and, you know, public officials are, you know, have a little bit of, um, you know, trepidation about, you know, officers out there, but we should never take our eye off the ball of what's killing our citizens. And, you know, we talk about the coronavirus and the impacts that it's had in our communities and especially our law enforcement you know, communities is hoping to see a change where we can see the, where our officers can go out and continue to do good law enforcement. Because when we talk about traffic safety, you know, there's always the element of, you know, pedestrian safety, bicycle safety. We also have motorcyclists, vehicles, and then another element that we often oversee is commercial vehicles. You know, because you know, when I was our commercial vehicle division commander, you know, I'd hear from you know a lot of folks that would say, you know, I don't even want to touch about big trucks. You know, yeah, logbooks and you know <laughs> shipping papers and you know and all these things, and they're big, and you know, there's nowhere to stop them. And 
But you know, the thing is, is that they're a gold mine. If you get them stopped, you're going to find all kinds of different things. And so uh, I think just looking at that and what we're seeing too from, and I'll just mention this, from the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration, in the first six months when they put out their drug and alcohol clearinghouse to show how many uh, drivers had been disqualified based on positive drug tests, over 10,000 were cannabis in the first six months. So, you know, law enforcement liaisons out there, if you are, you know, have any folks out there, think about bringing DREs together uh, and your commercial vehicle teams out there and do some emphasis patrols. Uh, Georgia did one, and in in one, I think it was just a couple hour shift that they went out and did, they had 10 drugged DUI uh, commercial vehicle drivers. Unbelievable. But yet, you know, when we talk about traffic safety, oftentimes we focus just on like the car or maybe motorcycles, pedestrians, bikes. So that might be another element that some people don't think of. So another element to kind of keep your eye on. National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, you know, with this new administration, you know, we'll have a new USDOT secretary. Um, I think it's, uh, is it, I can't remember his last name now. Uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Yeah, Pete Buttigieg. So, you know, new perspectives, new eyes coming in on this perspective. Uh, We really have asked, uh, we had an opportunity to meet with the Biden administration with Responsibility.org, and we made a real emphasis to make sure that you have a National Highway Traffic Safety Administration administrator um, 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 or what is it by the Senate, Um, you know, it's, I hope you can get along with that. uh, not, Not approved, but vetted, confirmed. Confirmed. Thank you. <laughs> Edit all that other stuff out. Anyways, um, confirmed by the Senate because we really need that leadership. And, you know, we've also been looking at and I think some positive things that, you know, agencies could be looking for is is how, you know, we'll be, be looking at a new transportation authorization and looking at some things there that could, you know, like I mentioned, how do we help the officers get to training and backfill? How do we help all agencies get the resources that they need? And so there's a lot of very positive things that can continue to keep focused. Another thing that I think will be very helpful um, to just be aware of in all of your, if you're all your law enforcement liaisons is communication with your toxicology laboratories. And we have just hired Amy Miles from the University of Wisconsin, um, their hygiene lab. And basically it's their toxicology program out of the University of Wisconsin. And we have her under a two-year contract where she is going to go out and do some assessments of all the toxicology lab labs and looking at processes, procedures, um, cutoff levels, and things like that, and seeing how we can help uh, them. We're not on a on a you know witch hunt. We're just out. How do we help change that system so that we can get some standardization um, across the country? So when we're looking at drug data it's much more consistent than what we're seeing now with different states and different cutoff levels. And, but also how do we help train with officers with the process of toxicology prosecutors that are bringing toxicologists in and setting foundation that have the questions and those kind of things. What can a toxicologist talk about? What can they not talk about? You know, those kind of things. And so doing a lot of training, we've also looked at uh, doing quite a bit of work with the oral fluid process and having the uh, the talks, you know, like Amy and others do some some training around what is oral fluid, and what's the science behind oral fluid? 
What kind of drugs can you get out of that? There's a lot of things that people do know, a lot of things that they don't. We know that there's um, various positive, negative, or you know, negative, or false positives, false negatives. But you know, what? How much has that gotten better? And and then what's the reality? And could you use oral fluid as a really key screening device, especially as we're seeing so much multi-substance impaired driving? In fact, I think in some of the latest data, we had over 58, or I'm sorry, 48% of fatal crashes had um, two or more substances in their body. And so, but that's just, you know, what we're capturing. And also what we are testing, because there are some policies in states, if it's over a 0.08 or a 0.10 alcohol, blood alcohol concentration, they won't continue to screen for other substances. And, And then those are either, you know, funding decisions, resource allocation, or whatever. But again, how do we help them to get over those types of policies so that they're screening for more? Because it's out there. We just aren't capturing that data. And then the other part is, I've also heard from one state, is if they have one um, Schedule One drug that shows up in the blood, then they stop testing as well. Another process that we really need to be looking much further Now, people would say, Darren, we don't have the money to do that. Well, how do we as responsibility.org help you at a federal level to get resources? How do we help you at a state level where we can come in? um, I'm I'm not saying we're we're the saviors and we're going to come in and save the day, but we can be a partner uh, in this. You know, I know Governor's Highway Safety Association is very concerned about this and would like to be a part of you know a bigger group and so we actually have created a um, new national alliance called the national alliance to stop impaired driving and it's going to be an umbrella uh, under the umbrella of responsibility.org initially as we get started but we're bringing groups together from all of the doi system from law enforcement prosecution judicial toxicology treatment that whole and then the industry, um, looking at how do we bring in like uh, enhanced uh, tech, emerging technologies like oral fluid testing, or even eye devices that can look and see the various things within the horizontal gaze nystagmus. How do we help normalize some of that and uh, begin getting the resources that we need? And so we have we'll have the ability to lobby and as a group. So we're looking for members to be a part of that. And, you know, we're just, you know, kind of, we're, we're down the runway. We're just trying to get the, you know, that spruce goose off the ground. And, and so, but really is looking at, um, and we do a lot of stuff at the state level um, on legislation. And then even at the federal level and, you know, trying to see how do we help provide funds specifically for toxicology? Because we do, and we appreciate the, the hard work and the effort that goes into that, but not having the resources. And, in, and I know when I was in Washington, we had significant issues with recruitment, retention, um, getting people trained up fast enough to be able to then be qualified to go into court and testify um, and actually certify the samples that they're doing. Then having the test kits that you can do so many samples of drugs. So. But that's another key piece is this is critical. 
we're looking right now, I mean, there's so much policy around the opioid addiction. Then there's issues with recreational marijuana. And here we're looking at um, the potential of having it decriminalized, yet we know the, you know the impacts that it can have. And so, and no, it does not get you off opioid addiction. No, it does not reduce your alcohol your uh, impairment, which is what we heard when I was the state highway safety office director is I get really drunk and I can smoke a joint and that just reduces my, uh, my alcohol impairment. Well, no, it doesn't. It actually increases your impairment. It may make you feel different, Mm-hmm. which obviously is if you feel different, you don't drive. <laughs> That's, and you love some of the, in that vein, the people who say, you know, when, I, when I'm, when i you know, a little bit impaired by cannabis, I drive better. Or my friend drives safer when he's stoned. Well, who are we talking about here, people? The ones that are actually ingesting and, and being with people that are ingesting as the the experts on behavior? I'd rather hear from the doctors. I'd rather hear from the data that says, no, we know that you're not a better driver, you don't make better decisions. Any level of impairment does exactly what the name suggests. It impairs you. Well, what's fascinating, um, as my good friend from uh, Oregon, Chuck Hayes from DRE program said, there is no BAC for THC. It does not exist. And I frankly don't think it will ever exist. And I don't think it will exist for a lot of other substances. It's too many varying However, factors. What's that? There's too many variant factors in in that and the fact that it just it's not alcohol and we can't use the mentality of how we dealt with alcohol to deal with this. Correct. And that was exactly how they wanted to do it in Washington. Oh, alcohol has a number. Let's give marijuana a number. Well, it was all basically a wild guess on five nanograms. And but I've also heard they said, well, we wanted to do kind of what they did in Europe. Well, if you do, Europe uses serum blood, we use whole blood, and serum blood is half. So it would have been about two nanograms if you were going to use the European model. <laughs> and so, but it's, it's, it's not based in research. It's not based in science. And what we're also seeing is that when people are dosed and they've measured, you know, that, that peak high within, the, you know, right away, yep. and then as you start seeing it drop down within that first 90 minutes or so, you see... Uh, the blood level, the nanograms dropping, and yet the impairment's continuing. And, and so, you know, I've asked doctors, I said, is nanogram the wrong measure to be using? And they said, well, we don't know what else to use. So really, it's the nanogram level to me is not a, a, a viable solution for um, cannabis impairment. And so the, so that's, but if we're going to use that, we need to continue. But it, because it's a, it's a lipid soluble where it stores in the fats, where it's in your brain. And so, and it's hard to measure quantifiably what that is in your brain from just what's maybe in your blood. Yeah. And that nanogram level is not going to be equivalent to impairment. So um, so that's one thing that we, we really need to, to look at, um, I think, as we move forward. But, you know, the, the good news is um, we're getting people trained. We have grants that are coming up uh, that we partner with Governor's Highway Safety Association. We'll be having some grant announcements coming out, and these can be used for anything um, around high-risk impaired driving. So if you needed some, you know, a grants funds for maybe electronic search warrants or for oral fluid pilot testing or phlebotomy, getting some phlebotomy programs up and running 
for you know uh, doing training with A-Ride, SFSTs, DRE. There's a whole host that this will be available to, um, and that will be coming up in the next uh, few weeks. So be keeping your eye out for that. But that's available to the states um, through their state highway safety office uh, that we can help to help supplement uh, additional funds for programs to help states uh, address this ongoing uh, problem. I mean, we talk about this coronavirus, um, which has been just devastating. But another, you know, issue that we really need to look at is the uh, drug, alcohol, controlled substance epidemic that we have in our country as well. And how much so. worse that's getting because of you know things like the epidemic and and people's concerns about the economy. Everything it all kind of plays together. In the end, when it comes to the impairment, if you don't drink and drive, you're a safer person. You don't get stoned and drive, you're a safer person. I think that's where we really have to start looking at is the behavior change how do we get to that level and until we actually get that behavior change buy-in we're thankful we have organizations like responsibility.org to help bridge us and get us uh, as good as we could possibly be under the existing uh, tools that we have darren thank you so much for your time one, um, oh, one thing absolutely. i wanted to just throw at you sure. and this is for all of your uh, listeners we have tried to be a really good partner on you know, being kind of thought leaders and and we've really taken some some heartfelt looks at, you know, like the electronic search warrant guide. We had folks that said, boy, we really could use some of that. Yeah. But so we got the funding and we did that. Another thing was, boy, we really could use, I mean, from training to training, it would be really nice if we could do green labs. So we put to, together the funds and the project and we built green labs. Same thing with courtroom testimony. I wish we could find ways to improve courtroom testimony, enhance it. So we did. Now, my my you know my quest or my or my request from all of you is, if there are some things and resources that are out there that could enhance benefit or whatever with you know within that bigger system, is let us know, and then we can program that into some of the work that we do to get you those resources that you need. And so, you know, for instance, like with phlebotomy, you know, NHTSA has their guide and they're gonna make a very special announcement. So you don't wanna miss this upcoming uh, uh, webinar. It's gonna be, I mean, I'm, I'm, I actually can't wait because I'm moderating it, but I get, yeah. uh, I'm really excited for what they're gonna be sharing. So, but that is just a, you know, something as a partner out there for LELs is, you know, but I really wish we had X or really wish we could do Y or I wish we had something that we could, you know, utilize as far as a guide, a text or something along that line that we could really kind of review and then maybe put that into our uh, programming for suggestions and make those resources available um, to all of our officers. Because, you know, I bleed blue. Um, that doesn't mean I, you know, turn a, a blind eye to things but I know the hard work that all of our um, women and men do in law enforcement and throughout the criminal justice program and the work that's gone done with our prosecutors. And we owe them that respect to help continue the good work that they're doing because quality of life is exactly what we, we need. So despite all that other negativity, but we'll get through all that together. <laughs> Absolutely. And having said that, Darren, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, you've been beyond gracious. People need to get a hold of you. How do they do it? 
Uh, I am at darren.grondel, G-R-O-N-D-E-L, at responsibility.org. Or you can call my uh, my work cell at 571-309-7615. I appreciate and, so, it. and I can send you some of that so that it can be available to all of your folks. And, and you know, just be safe and do the right things. Awesome. Always. <laughs> thank you, sir. Well, thank you. Did you know one in five vehicles on the road today has an open safety recall? If left unrepaired, safety recalls put the lives of drivers and their passengers at risk. To help spread the word about this safety concern, the Governor's Highway Safety Association has partnered with Check to Protect, a public awareness campaign led by the National Safety Council. It's easy to check if your vehicle is affected. You can go to checktoprotect.org and enter your 17-character vehicle identification number, or VIN, and you can find the VIN in your driver's side dashboard, the inside of your driver's door, and on the registration or insurance documents. If you have safety recalls, you will be directed to find your closest dealer and schedule a free repair. Information is also available in Spanish.